You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. I want to preach to you a message that I've entitled to. Now, for those who will be listening through podcast or our streaming, that's T-O colon, okay, not T-W-O, two. In his book entitled Hidden Christmas, Pastor Timothy Keller makes an astute observation. Christmas is about receiving gifts, but some gifts are challenging to accept. Some gifts make you swallow your prod. Under the tree, there's a box there written to you. You open that box up, and to your surprise, it's a dieting book. By the way, this is a terrible gift idea. If you have done this, especially if you're a husband and you have done this. I'll see you in my counseling room. (laughs) But if you receive a dieting book and you say to the giver, thank you so much, you are in a sense admitting, I am indeed obese. And this will help me. Or maybe someone figured out you were in financial trouble and offered you a large sum of money, and it can be challenging to accept that gift. No gift will ever make you swallow your pride like the very first Christmas gift. In today's Bible passage, Syria sometimes called Aram or Aram or Damascus in the text, and Israel, and it's sometimes referred to as Ephraim or Samaria, but Syria and Israel had attacked the southern kingdom of Judah because the king of Judah, Ahaz, refused to join an anti-Assyrian coalition. And this Assyria would be modern-day northern Iraq. King Ahaz and the people of Judah initially stood their ground. They weren't going to join this coalition. But after word of another Syrian and Israel attack, that it was pending, Judah felt hopeless. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, came and gave a message of hope and peace to King Ahaz and the people of Judah if they would just trust in him. Trust me. God would defeat Syria and Israel, but King Ahaz and the people refused and did not trust in God's ability and sovereign control over her enemies. Instead, the leadership resorted to conspiring with mediums, witches, and then ultimately, catch the irony, they conspired with the military might of Assyria. I had one commentator put it this way, think of 
three mice arguing with one another, and one mouse goes and gets a cat to fix it. Well, after he fixes it, what's he going to do? Eat all three. <laughs> so that's what they thought was smart. They were looking to themselves or to others to fix the world, and they had looked in the wrong place. In today's Bible passage, Isaiah 9-6, God promises through the prophet Isaiah that a light would dawn upon the world. It's so interesting to note, we'll talk about it more tonight in our candlelight service, it didn't come from within the world, it came upon the world. Something outside of the world would come into this world and make things right. No one or nothing else would be needed to get the job done. This prophecy is fulfilled at the very first Christmas. Let's just look at the first half of this prophecy this week. It's Isaiah 9-6, just the first two lines. We've sung about it, and here they are in their glorious text. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us. Here's what I want you to write down in your notes. The big question I want us to explore. Why to us? Why to us? Why do we need outside help? Why can't we fix ourselves? Why can't we make the world right on our own or with the help of our allies? Why must someone from outside come into our mess to fix it? Why to us? The very first thing that we will notice, and we'll go ahead and let you know this prophecy is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. But the very first thing that we need to notice is this, is that Jesus was this, born to us for second birth. He was born to us, born to us for second birth. Now some of you are already sitting there going, second birth? What is second birth and why do we need second birth? And I know second birth is a biblical idea. You probably don't talk about being born again outside of the context of the Bible. But it's absolutely essential. You must be born again. You must experience second birth. Why? Because all of us, you and me, have sinned against a holy God. God has made himself evident through creation, in our conscience, and in his written word. He's literally put it in black and white. Every single one of us, deep in the pit of our soul, in the depths of our hearts, and even in our depraved minds, we know there is a God. And we know we ought to live better, but rather than acknowledge the reality of God, because we know if we did, we'd have to radically change our lives, we suppress Him in unrighteousness so that we can continue to sin and live life on our terms. And when we do this, we don't give honor to God. We don't worship God. We don't pay Him what is due to Him. Church, world, He created you. You owe him worship as merely the creator. He sustains you. He woke you up this morning, gave you life and breath and movement. 
He did that to you. You owe him that much this morning, and then he's preserved you. Who can count the times unbeknownst to you where God has had his hand of protection on you and has brought you to where you are this minute out of sheer grace and patience that you might hear the good news that his son loved and came and died for you. We at least owe him that much, but we don't. We don't properly or heartfelt give him thanks. Because if we give him thanks, we acknowledge he's there. And instead, we substitute him. We'll follow our dreams. I think it's this way. If you follow your dreams, you'll find your idols. You'll find what else you worship, what else you adore besides God, what you live your life on. And here's what you need to understand. God is the all-satisfying one. He is of infinite worth. Every created thing has a price and a premium, and it will eventually run out. It all disappoints, decays, or dies. Even the neighbor sitting next to you can't be your God. They'll let you down. I can't be your God. This church can't be your God. This community can't be your God. Your nation can't be your God. Why? They all disappoint, decay, and die. Only God can be God. And yet we've refused him. We've ignored him. We have sinned against him and his holy word. And what's the consequence? The consequence or the result or the payment for our sins against God is death. Please remember this. You are dead to God in your sin. When we use the word death, I don't think we know what it means. We think of death as simply separation of body and soul. Some of you may go a little further to appreciate death as separation from creature, from creator. You're getting closer. But can I tell you something? That does not exhaust the entire biblical meaning of death. I believe there is a heaven and a hell, and every single one of us is headed in one direction or the other. But here's what I need you to know. You and I are experiencing death spiritually right this moment. You say, how? Biblical death is life right now, estranged from God, that results in all kinds of dangers to us. Life right now, estranged from God, that results in all kinds of dangers. What are them? For instance, biblical death includes the loss of purpose. What on earth am I here for? Meaning, what am I supposed to be doing or where did I come from? It also includes the loss of hope. Where am I heading? Now you can supply your own answer, but I need you to know this. They will not be objective nor satisfactory. You will continue to have those deep, disturbing questions. Your whole life, as you're estranged from God, you are experiencing biblical death in the areas of purpose, meaning, and hope. And it doesn't stop there. Biblical death also includes being controlled by our uncontrollable desires. We are ever discontent. Our lives reek of shame and regret. We grow frustrated, disappointed, and restless trying to change and ultimately getting nowhere. That is why moral reform and trying to live a good life without God is doomed from the start because you cannot do those things apart from Him. 
living that disappointing, frustrating life in an attempt to reach the good life without God is a part of biblical death. You and I are so dead in sin that only someone from the outside can do something about it. You and I cannot resuscitate ourselves. We cannot resurrect ourselves. We need second birth. Write this down. Here's what second birth is. It's simply this. When God imparts spiritual life to us, when God gives it as a free gift, He imparts spiritual life to us. And in case, what's the big, you want to know the big theological term for it, it's the theological term for regeneration, to be regenerated, to be born again, born anew, to have another chance, so to speak. And this has present and future implications. Here's what I need you to understand. God requires a fundamental internal change right now in our lives. In this life, He wants a change of heart, which is the seat of the entire personality. We're not just talking about affections and feelings. God wants us to change our affections, our feelings, our thinking, our decision-making, and our, and our reacting. And here's what you'll find. Without God imparting spiritual life, you will not be able to develop that kind of change on your own. God in Jesus has literally taken it upon himself to impart it to you. Now, I want to give you a word of warning. So we're talking about God doing something in us that profoundly changes us from the inside out. That's what second birth is. But I don't want you to think that a person's outward external life cannot be different from someone who doesn't have the second birth. Catch this. A person's external life can be very much like that of a second birth Christian, and yet there be no second birth at all. Let me break it down to you and explain it to you. Have you ever seen a real fight, a real fight, like out on the street, out on the playground? And then have you ever seen a movie or a television show where there's been a choreographed fight? All right, now think about this. From an onlooker's perspective, they look the same. But if you dive down into the intentions and the goals of those two fights, they're quite different. The intention in a real fight is what? Somebody doesn't get up. That's a real fight. It's life or death. Someone comes away with real harm, in danger, wounded. You do whatever it takes in a, in a real fight. But what happens in a choreographed fight? No real harm is done. It looks like harm is done, but they're not hurt at all. And in fact, after a choreographed fight, what do they do? They shake hands. Now think about this, Christian. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and imparts spiritual life, the Bible teaches us over and over again, He's there to wage war and fight against our sinful nature. That hostility that we have toward God, God puts a new desire in us to love Him. And so they fight against one another. 
And my question to you this morning is this. Is there a real fight going on in your heart for the things of God? Or is this just choreographed and none of us can tell? It's just a dance. You look at it from the outside and you look like every other Christian that's walked the planet. But on the inside, there's no real harm being done to sin. See, the second birth will put, a, will put to death the sinful flesh. It's after it. Let me test you on a couple of things. Are you right now, I'm asking you this second, are you experiencing the results of the second birth? And here's how you can tell. I want to quiz you. Think deep about your soul. Examine your faith. Do you hate those stupid, sinful things you wasted your life on that you once admired? And do you seek now after godly things which you despised or considered a waste of your time? I'll never forget when my grandpa Taylor, he came to faith late in life. And my grandpa, and I've shared this story with you, was a big NASCAR fan. And my grandma Taylor was a good, godly woman, and she was a church of God woman, all right? They went to church. Grandma, I'd see her tons of times kick off her shoes, and she's gone. And I'll never forget, they would get done about 1230. Y'all complain about me, y'all ain't, ain't seen nothing, all right? And my papa, for 30 the reason he couldn't go to church was because the race came on at 1 o'clock. Now, in case you don't know this, my grandpa lived five miles from the church that my grandma attended. He saw no value in it. Why would you want to do that? I could possibly miss the first lap. And everybody knows you just need to see the wrecks in the last lap. I grew up in North Carolina. Then when he got saved, he never missed a Sunday. Why? He all of a sudden had that spiritual life imparted to him and saw, oh, I know what this is for now. But he couldn't value it. See what I mean? Now, hey, could a lost person still walk into church every Sunday? Yeah. At least my, my, my grandfather was honest about it. What's the use? His heart had been changed. Think about this. Does your heart, which once longed for the pleasures of sin, now smells those sin as dung and longs to enjoy blamelessness and holiness. I can tell you, one of the things now, the sense of regret and shame over sin, it leaves such a bad taste in your mouth. The minute you sin, you walk away and you just go, why? It would have been so much not doing it. It was worth not doing it. Has your family, friends, or co-workers mentioned a godly difference to you? Something's up. He doesn't talk the same like he used to. He cares about it. She doesn't always look mean. <laughs> Have those same people laughed or maybe picked at you because of your godliness? Something's up. He's a holy roller now. I don't know. Or the topics of conversation now change around the table. And then if an angel followed you into your private life, 
Would you be ashamed? Or would that angel see you praying? I'm not trying to measure you or make you more godly than you aren't. I, I can't do that. What I'm trying to say is this. It's easy to follow the externals. Only Jesus can impart spiritual life to us, and it shows up in the things that only you and God know about. That's what I need you to see. Jesus was born to us for second birth, and y'all, that's not all. That's just one thing. He just came to impart true spiritual life to us, but he does something else. I want you to notice the subtle but significant shifts in the first two lines here. Notice this. A child will be what? Born. And then it says a son will be given. Interesting. The first line calls a child born. And we see this come into fulfillment from the virgin's womb. Jesus' life on earth began. He was born into the world. But the second line, a son given, actually adds even more to our understanding about Jesus' exact nature. And let me just give you a few verses, write these down, and then go meditate on them this week. Isaiah 6.1. Write it down. Isaiah 6.1. Isaiah is in probably the physical temple and has a vision of God's heavenly temple. And listen to what it says in Isaiah 6.1. He says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, that's King Ahaz's father, when he died, I saw the Lord, that's God, the God of Israel, seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Now that's, you may look at that and you say, that's pretty majestic and amazing. Oh, it gets richer if you'll keep reading your Bible. Listen to what it says in John chapter 12, verse 41. The Apostle John, the best friend of Jesus and a lifelong disciple, said this, Isaiah said these things because Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. See, what Isaiah didn't know, that John knew, that if John was sitting there beside Isaiah and Isaiah goes, I see the Lord high lifted up, and John goes, that's Jesus. That's my best friend. What? A man? <laughs> and here's what it teaches us. Jesus' life in heaven wasn't created or born. See, Jesus has no beginning and no end. He is the Alpha and Omega, the A and the Z. He existed from eternity past, and he'll continue to exist, exist through eternity future. Jesus is called the eternally only begotten Son. Isn't it interesting? He's not just born, he's begotten. He is begotten from eternity and born to us. You and I are created and born. We're still different. Yet all the same. <laughs> this is what we note in verse 9. Son being given is this. Is that Jesus has eternally existed, but at last, long last, he's been given to us. He is a gift to you. Do you hear it? I need you to see this. He is a gift to you, every one of you this morning. Why to us? 
Why did the eternally begotten Son of God, robed in glory and majesty, leave his throne in Isaiah and come to a manger? Why to us? Number two, he was given to us for adoption. Given to us for adoption. These are some weird terms. He said, I've been second born, (laughs) born again, and now God wants adoption. He wants to adopt me. He sure does want to adopt you. Because remember, you're estranged from him. You're hostile to him. You're his enemy. That's how God views you. And God gave his one and only son, what? That you might be reconciled to him and brought into his family and be treated just as his son is. Listen to what John 1.12 says. Write this down. John 1.12. But to all who did receive Jesus, Jesus gave them the right to be the children of God to those who believe in his name. Did you catch that, church? When we trust and receive Jesus, we become children of God. Now, why is that significant? Why should you rejoice over the fact that God wants you to be his child? Three things I want you to notice quickly this morning. The first thing when we become a child of God is we share in Jesus' life. We share in Jesus' life. It says in John 1, 4, In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, when we look at the word life, that is the Greek word for eternal life. And when you and I hear eternal life, we kind of get captivated by it. We know, well, we're physically going to die, so it sure would be nice to be resurrected to live eternally. How many, everybody's up for that. We like that concept. But I also want you to notice what else Jesus provides. John, while interested in eternal life, he is infatuated about the quality of life eternal life brings. He's not so much consumed about quantity as he is quality. Here's what Jesus, uh, John goes on to record Jesus praying in John 17:3. Listen to this, John 17:3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Did you notice this? Eternal life is about a real knowing relationship with God himself. We sh- Oh, everybody else bored to death with the relationship with the God of the universe. Did you catch that? You are hostile and estranged. And he says this, come on in, family. Sit down at the table. That's what he wants you to know. He wants you to feel that. The second thing is this. We no no longer belong to the devil. Some of you didn't even know this. If you're not a child of God, you are a child of the devil. The Bible paints it that black and white. Listen to 1 John 3.10. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God. Do you see that there's only two camps to be in? Only two camps. That's how God views this. So you can either be adopted through Jesus Christ and brought into the family of God, or you can remain a child of the devil. That's where we currently are apart from Christ. And then the last thing that happens to those who are adopted is we love one another. We love one another. That verse goes on to say, 1 John 3.10, 
especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. How can we find out whether you belong to a, as a child of the devil or you belong to a, as a child of God? It's a real simple test. Do you love other Christian brothers and sisters? Christian, that's not humanity's brother and sister. The church. Do you love the church? That's a sign that you've adopted because, look, God just didn't adopt each of us individually. While he did, he adopted us corporately. We're a big family. And if you're a part of the family, you love one another. And just like the second birth, the adoption has real-life consequences in our life this very second. This second. I'm going to test you again. I want you to think about these again. Because you can have the outside looking good and you can miss being born again, the second birth, and being adopted. One, do you have a child's love for God? Do you have a child's love for God? Two, do you love your Christian brothers and sisters? And I'm talking about the people sitting in this room with you. Do you love them? Three, do you trust God as your provider? Let me tell you why that's important. Because God sees a part of his fatherly cares as taking care of your needs. So if you claim to be a child of God, you can rest in knowing my father will take care of me. Can you trust that he'll provide for you? Are there times when you're on your knees and you say, my father and you know he's listening. My father, and you know he's listening to me as his child. And then this last one. Does the Holy Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you're a child of God? I can't answer that for you. Is there something inside of you that calls out and cries out, I'm his, and he's mine. If you do not sometimes enjoy the spirit of adoption, not just this theological idea, but an actual present reality, I can tell you right now, if you're not enjoying any of those things, you're not a son or daughter of God. You're not. And don't deceive yourself any longer. The externals, the outward things may be good, but inwardly, I need you to know this, you're dead in sin and you're estranged from God. And hey, this child and son was born and given to grant you new birth and to be adopted into the family of God. That's why he came for you and me. Do not rest unless you know for sure that Christ is yours and that you are Christ. Will you really leave your eternal destiny to uncertainty? Heaven or hell? is at stake. Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners, and the question is this, has he saved you? If a child is born to me, Josh Taylor, I want to know that child with confidence. If a child or son is given to me, Josh Taylor, I want to be sure of it. I don't want to go any longer without knowing it. I want to live in the enjoyment of the privilege and the gift that he's given to me. If you want to accept this gift today, 
There's a couple of things God does expect us to do. The first thing is this, is that you admit you're a sinner. Not to me, I know you are. Not to your neighbor, they don't know. <laughs> but listen, go into the inner chamber of your heart and in silence confess to King Jesus you are a sinner and you deserve death and to be estranged uh, from God forever. Do not think there is any merit in confessing that. That doesn't gain you favor. I just need you to know this. God promises not to pardon anyone who won't first confess they're a sinner. Do you catch that? If you won't confess you're a sinner, you cannot be saved. The second thing is this, is once you've admitted that you're a sinner, renounce yourself. You may have been resting in some kind of hope that you can make yourself better, and so save yourself, give all that up. You haven't done it, and you won't do it. And I'm not saying that judgmental. I can't either. My best prayers, my best praise, my best works can never get me spiritual life imparted to me. It's a gift. You see that? I cannot earn it. I cannot earn being adopted into the family of God. I cannot earn eternal life. These are gifts. That's why they're hard to swallow. A true Christian, here's a sign of a true Christian, a true Christian knows he cannot live holy apart from God. I need God. And then when you have truly confessed that you're a sinner and you have given up all hope on yourself, you're not looking to yourself or anyone else on this world to fix you, then I want you to go to the cross. I want you to see the child, the son, Jesus, dying in agony, bleeding for your sins. And I want you to trust him and throw your arms around his bleeding body as the only way that you can be saved. And then you take up your cross and you follow Jesus only unto regeneration, resurrection, and eternal life. I want you to be, be able to say, like the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, he says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the real life I now have within this body is a result of my trusting in the Son of God. And then listen to this last verse. Listen to how personal he makes it. Who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the kind of relationship that God wants with every single one of us. Write it down. Write it down. Can you say, to me, this son is given? Can you say it? Can you own him today? Can you say, this is the gift, and I've accepted it. And I know when I came, just like receiving that dieting book, I'm having to accept, I've got a problem. I've come accepting Jesus, knowing I'm a sinner. And I can't do anything about it. But to me, he, will, he has come into the world to fix it and to save it. And I believe it and I receive it. And it's yours, beginning now and lasting through eternity. The last thing is this. Believer, are you given to him? Write it down. Are you given to him? 
to him. That's our reasonable response of worship. Please understand, our obedience does not necessarily merit salvation, but here's what happens. When we see the gift that Jesus has given, we want to go, I want to do whatever I can for him. Do you feel you have nothing on earth to live for but to glorify him? Can you say, all that I am, all that I have is yours forever, Jesus. It's yours. If so, if you've said that, and that's your promise and your commitment to him, why are our hearts so cold? Why do we do so little for him who has done so much for us? Am I saved if I love him so little? Why am I not more intensely fervent in prayer? How is it we have given so little to Christ and he has given all to us? How is it that we serve him so sadly who served us so perfectly? Are you given to him? And then I don't want to leave you in some sad estate this morning. Can you stop and pause just a minute and reflect? Give it just a minute of your attention to go that the God of the universe came down and presented himself as a gift to you. Rejoice! Are you sad this morning? Is your financial situation troubling you, robbing you of joy? Can I pause for just a moment? I'm not saying that doesn't hurt. But I just want you to see this. Put it aside. Unto you a son is given. Right? Get your joy where it's supposed to be. Whoa, hey, a child has been given to me. A son has been given to me. Rejoice. Are you sick or suffering? Real things. Real sorrows. But let me remind you, to you a son is given. <laughs> Rejoice. Are you suffocating in your sin? You want a new life. You want to put the old behind you and become a new person. This child came to take away your sin. This son can wash you and make you fit for heaven. Rejoice! Sadly, think of this. Would you rejoice over a Christmas bonus if I announced it to you right now? I have a better announcement. Unto you a child is born. Unto you a son is given. Rejoice! Christian Sanger song. Unto us, unto us, let gratitude touch you. To us, to us. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.